This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast, and I'm your host, George Khalifa. Wearing the Northwestern hat, we got to give a shout out. <laughs> Go <laughs> Cavs. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, you come from a, from a very interesting background, a mix of chemistry, a mix of math, a PhD in neuroscience, and then the startup world, man. What, what, what got you there? It's a crazy road. <laughs> <laughs> it is the crazy road. So I'll, I'll kind of start you off and feel free to stop me when you're like, what? Why did you do that? <laughs> um, so I... Um, so from Ohio, went to college at Indiana University in Bloomington, which is the main campus. And I um, was really interested in kind of discreteness of things. So I, I started as a math major, BS math, and I finished as a BS and math major, and kind of added a BA in chemistry kind of um, along the way, because I really got into kind of pre-med. But I was really interested always in like, oh, you know, I can do a calculation, I don't have to remember definitions of things like you had to do in biology or I didn't have to, rem- you know, I didn't have to network like you might have to do in the business school. So I was super into just like the fact that math w- is what it is and um, got into it, really started loving the, the concept of, uh, of science and, and kind of the intersection between kind of analytic analytics and kind of like wet science. And so I thought, you know, it'd be really cool to kind of go into kind of a pre-med or medicine kind of track. And so that's kind of what took me a little bit into the biochemical biosphere. That led me into, well, a really interesting career into science. Uh, but coming out of Indiana, I uh, uh, was doing about, in my, I'd say in my free time, I was doing reproductive cancer research. I was working with a new faculty member there for about three and a half years. And we were studying proteins that cause tumors in, um, in ovaries or fallopian tubes or things like that. And I really got into, uh, obviously cancer is a huge topic. So I kind of loved wrapping my head around something that had nothing to, really to do directly with math or with chemistry. Um, and something that had so much impact in the world. But then um, what I started to like more as I graduated was making my own science, right? Doing my own work and not really working under someone, but kind of trying to create something or trying to uncover something that we just didn't know. And um, so as I kind of left undergrad and doing math and chemistry and reproductive ecology research, I got into neuroscience and you might wonder why Um, because none of those things have anything really to do with like brain science or brain disease or how the brain develops. Right. Uh, um, And I remember the day I was um, reading an article, I think a time magazine article about, uh, about aging um, and, and memory, memory loss. And I just went, well, how does that work? Right, like how does how do we form memories? How do we lose memories? Mm. Seems pretty compli- complicated. So, um, for a year after I graduated, I had three jobs. I always tell people I had three jobs offers. I was going to be able to teach pre-calculus at a boarding school in Virginia. Um, I could run the organic chemistry teaching laboratories at Indiana, where I was, mm-hmm. or work on the Obama campaign to be president in South Carolina. And in my, um, in my, yeah, yeah, in my uh, uh, visionary choosing, I thought there's no way that this this guy who is super smart and, and and influential could be Hillary, 
So I was like, my job is going to last for like two months and then I won't have a job. I came, I didn't, my parents don't have much money. And so I needed to get a job that actually was solid, quote unquote. So I decided to do the organic chemistry teaching lab job. Next thing you know, he, yeah, yeah, exactly. Next thing you know, he went on to be president. Yeah, it, 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 that's crazy. Um, so when I was doing that job, running the organic chemistry teaching laboratories, what I would do is help graduate students teach the class, right? And so I got to interact with uh, probably about 40 graduate students um, every single day, 40 different graduate students every single day. Um, and as a newly minted graduate from undergraduate, that was super impactful. And I'd already had ruminating this idea about like, how do we think, how do we form memories? How do we lose memories? And so I took a very intro one-on-one neuroscience class. I'd never taken a neuroscience class before. And I just loved it. I thought, man, this guy who's teaching this class knows nothing about the brain. Like it's, it's not that he is ignorant. It's just that the subject is so new and the tools, it's, kind of really, it's just being explored. And so like any 22 year old, 23 year old, where you think the world's at your disposal, I, I remember Googling what are the top neuroscience programs in the country. And I just applied, <laughs> I just applied. I'd only taken like a survey, pass or fail course. I'd never really thought about neuroscience. You know, the, 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 the things, the structures of the brain I would call squigglies. Um, and so, uh, yeah, but no, I, I was fortunate to get into those programs and I decided to come to Chicago. That's very cool. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, when I was looking at your profile, I think that resonated with me a lot because my, um, my fiance is actually doing a PhD, not in neuroscience, but in clinical psych. Mm-hmm. And what got her into it is her, her grandma has dementia, mm-hmm. you know, and, and like, I just, you know, obviously with that upbringing and, and seeing it firsthand to your point, I think you were talking a bit about how does, how does a brain just, you know, magically lose its memory? Yes. Um, just yes. All of a sudden with people that, you know, and you've known for, for your entire life. I mean, it's, it's quite complex. It, it's very complex. And I think, you know, um, there are so many, there, there are some secondary factors, you know, there are so many people very brilliant and smart people really focusing on like, how do we solve cancer? What are some tools? And I thought, man, I'm going to have to be super lucky and super brilliant to make a, a, a mark in this field because there had been so much ahead of me versus neuroscience seemed to kind of be, you know, green pastures. Like we were at first principles. We're just getting the tech. We're just getting the hardware. We're just getting the actual things to kind of dig into some of the questions that people have had for 50, 60, 70 years. So um, I thought for the reason of just my own interest and the reason of just like, it seemed like a place that I can make impact um, without being, you know, Albert Einstein that I would go on and, um, and, and try my hand at pursuing a, a PhD, which I also had little concept of. Obviously, like I was in, working with graduate students who are PhDs. I had gone to college and professors are PhDs. But I didn't really think about the rigor, like the longevity or the investment you have to make in kind of doing those programs. But I got a, I, I, I found out when I got on <laughs> campus in 2008. Yeah, you feel firsthand. Well, her program's like five years. So just being in that mix, you know, you know how it is, writing the thesis and working on the side. Um, you know, what's super interesting about your background, too, is, and I don't know why, man, but there, there seems to be this kind of... Um, this weird dilemma with entrepreneurship, right? It's kind of like you, you either are an entrepreneur and you can go through the academics route. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of like uh, mm-hmm. it's seen negatively a, a little bit. You yes. know, if you're too heavy in academics, 
it, it's not actually seen as like something as a as positive maybe as a founder and yes. you went to the academia route you then you know worked a little bit with google ey yes. on the consulting side so entrepreneurship didn't seem like a like you know the immediate step for you yes. so I'm curious like were you how did you build that self-awareness to say you know one day i'm gonna build reapply which was five almost five years ago yeah so the the kind of transition um was what i love about science and academia or research in academia is it's how intentional and deliberate it is, right? So like, you know, um, I was lucky enough just actually a couple of days ago, we're publishing the last paper from my PhD work. So like six wow. years later, Congrats. that's an example of what I'm saying, by the way, but um, you don't get to things fast. Um, you get to things deliberately. You try to do the experiments, you try to do the controls, you try to think about the possibilities and the implications. Then as a scientist, you draw very narrow conclusions based on lots of data because you know you're going to be wrong, but you don't want to be big wrong, right? Like you don't want to be the guy in the, in the, in the journal that everyone's laughing at. Or the, and so, um, so I love that, but it's not fast enough. And if you kind of go back to when I was kind of talking about one have impact. I really do want to have impact. And so the kind of next space that I thought that I could have impact faster was through business. As I started to see friends who were a little bit more senior than me in my program at the time enter into alternative careers in science, meaning that they didn't go to the professoriate, they went to consulting, they went into corporate um, positions. I realized like they would come back and give talks and they would mention oh, I've worked in two, three really interesting business problems over the last year. And I'm still trying to figure out how to optimize a control experiment, right, for a whole year. So I say, okay, that seems interesting. And if I can work on business problems that are for scientific firms, um, that might bridge where I was in my PhD to kind of where I could have more impact, which is in business. And so um, at the time, Cal, uh, it's actually still today, uh, the Kellogg School of Management has a program at Northwestern that they offer exclusively to 50 graduate students. Um, so I think there's probably like 8,000 graduate students at Northwestern. And um, this program allows these 50 students to kind of basically get um, an MBA that is fashioned for scientists and engineers. So all the case studies are about science problems or engineering problems and science markets and engineering markets. So I did that. I was, I was lucky enough to be in the sec second class of that program. I did that and that just really just changed my whole thinking about like what was possible um, given where I was and where I could go. And so kind of coming out of that program, I, you know, I started to think about, you know, not necessarily starting my own company, but just working in consulting and, um, and then I was able to do that. So after I, gra I graduated, I did a short postdoc at Northwestern. But right after that, I went into consulting and management consulting. And I worked for a couple of different firms that we can kind of talk about. But even before I left to go to consulting, I had the idea briefly. So right. as I was going into, uh, into my first job, I realized like, oh, I've seen a problem at my university that I think I can solve with a business. I think there's a market. And I knew my best friend, now one of my co-founders, I knew he could help me with the idea. Um, and so it kind of had the component parts, but I'm not a technologist. So we're back eight years before, just like I'm not a neuroscientist 
trying to get into a neuroscience program. I'm not a technologist, but I'm thinking about being a CEO of a startup. So that's kind of how it uh, materialized in some ways. Yeah. And what's fascinating too, and back to that, like, uh, what's funny is like, it's almost like the, the birthplace of the idea came in academia, right? Because you were looking at the university and correct me if I'm wrong, but you noticed the errors with, with silos, right? Like you, mm-hmm. and it's, it's funny that it's not just universities, man. Like I would see this even in business, like how departments would talk to each other, right? Let alone, you know, exchange assets if they needed it. They would, you know, I, obviously we'll get to the idea, but I think that was the, the real breaking point for you, right? Like yes. wow, this is an actual pain point. Absolutely. I mean, um, I had never worked a corporate job, um, so I never really understood like what what I see here at Northwestern. I know it's probably the case at Harvard. I know it's probably the case at Yale or Ohio State, but I don't know much about, uh, you know, Mars Wrigley or Hershey or Google or kind of big names that people know. I don't really know how those are structured. So in some ways, working in supply chain in a consulting global consulting firm gave me the exposure to be like, not only is it the same as the universities, one could argue it's way worse um, because and we can kind of get into some of the value props, but yeah. a lot of the things that kind of govern how organizations procure items, how they store items, how they keep track of them, and then how they use them are somewhere between sticky notes, spreadsheets, and hopes and prayers. Um, and so with versus like at a university, especially a state university, there are compliance things that really call for universities to kind of have some sense of asset tracking and things like that. So we, one of the things I've learned, um, both from consulting, but just kind of running repo for the almost five years now is, um, how broader and bigger the problem is kind of in the enterprise and kind of government space than it really is even in uh, academia. Mm. Yeah, it, it almost like validated that, that idea for you, right? Absolutely. That this Absolutely. thing is actually more scalable than just in the confinement of a, of a university institution. Cor- correct, correct, exactly. And, and I, I think what's, what's, what's important here to maybe talk about a bit is like, how do you go from an idea to actual inception? I know one of the things you talked about was pairing up with the co-founder. Man, mm-hmm. some, of the, some of the most successful you know, entrepreneurs I've talked to, co-founder of Netflix, co-founder of Starbucks, everyone told me the same exact thing. You know, they're always like the team, especially in the early days, is super important, right? Like complement your weaknesses. Uh, was that, was that the first step in actually Absolutely. conceptualizing this thing? Absolutely. So it's kind of a, it's a funny story. So my co-founder, um, our chief product officer, Tyler Skelton, he's been my best friend for, uh, not to date myself, a long time. And uh, he, as with any friends, at least our our kind of relationship, I would just bring him ideas I had. You know, I'd eat a sandwich. I'm like, oh, the sandwich is not great. We should make sandwiches. Um, Or, you know, you know, I actually do think a lot of great businesses come out of like actual problems that you personally have. Right. Um, But so I would bring him any idea that I personally have. And he, without failed, like, eliminated all of them for like ever being a company and ever being a good idea, except this one. So I knew that I had something because over the, I don't know, five, six, seven years of just me just throwing random ideas at him, mm. he would go, that's crazy. What are you talking about? No, that's small. That, you know, he would have something. And then this was the one where he, he goes, hmm, that's quite interesting. 
And um, I actually remember the moment. I, I, I distinctly remember the moment when he said that. And I thought, oh, maybe I have something. It was like a weird validation point. And he, wasn't even, he wasn't even a scientist. I, he had no, um, uh, he wasn't an academic. Um, he just, I think he was empathetic to the fact that if you're in a large organization and you're in employee, right? So you're one person and you're just trying to get a sense of like, what, what is, where is what I'm looking for? He understood that there's probably not a really good tool to do that. And there might be a market for developing a tool. So we, uh, we got to work on it, but I think the, so I think validating it, finding a person, but then validating it with someone you trust is a key thing. But for me, you know, I read a lot of startup blogs and startup books. And the thing that I think that always I try to say to founders or the people thinking about an idea is you just got to start. I, I, I actually don't think there's like some type of secret formula. If someone knows of one, please email me. You can find my email. Um, but I, I think it's just, you have to have conviction you have to have probably someone validate it for you, but you really just got to just start. You just got to get out there and then let the market kind of tell you about what that idea is and if it's viable. If we started Uber, not in 2008, but in 1998, it would not be a company, exactly. right? But that doesn't mean that that's not a good idea. So I think this just part of just getting started is just starting and seeing what the market kind of tells you. Yeah. And, and I, I love one thing you, you've said, and this is something also that I've really picked up as a theme, like some of the best founders do is, is they almost use ideation as like a muscle, you know, it almost becomes a muscle because, you know, you're just chilling with your friends and instead of chilling and, and not really being productive all the time, you know, you actually sit and, and talk about ideas and a hundred yes. of those ideas are probably crap, you know, yes. but like yes. one of them is going to be that gem in the rough. You know, yes. let me, let me show you something your listeners won't be able to see, but this book right here is called my ideas book. There you go. And I have a journal I've kept for five years that just has ideas I have. They're not all my ideas. I have a criteria for a, an idea to get in that book. But yeah, to your, to your point, I try to just think about, it's actually a good exercise for me at Reefly, is I just try to think about ideas all the time. Why wouldn't that work? Why does that work? Different models, which is why I love talking to founders because I love the hearing about other businesses and what they're going through because it helps you bring it back home and think about, when your company goes through something similar, how can you go like, oh, I know how to potentially solve this, or I know someone who can help us. So like, I love rapping about cool ideas and new ideas. But again, ideas are somewhat cheap. Um, yeah. That's going back to that you have to go out and actually start something. And sometimes starting is just writing it down. Right. Just writing down what's the value prop, what's the mission. What is the product? What's the MVP look like? Who are the stakeholders? You know, Porter's five, like all those types of things. And um, I try to do that as an exercise. So if you looked at my journal, you'll see an idea and then you'll see me, my thinking about it. And if it has a couple of pages, I, it must mean I love the idea. If it has half a page, it must mean that I think the idea was kind of stupid. <laughs> are you ever going to release this? The, 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 the Gary? Um, I, I would love to release this. You know, I don't know the count of the number of ideas, but I would say several have been enacted. Wow. So several of the ideas have become companies, which is exciting. So someone else is also thinking. And so it's like, yeah. at least I'm not so stupid that the idea <laughs> I came up with is just like completely uh, uh, invalid. Someone else is actually operating the company. So um, no, I would love to. I would love to do something like that one day. I want people to build many, many, many more companies. I think 
I know we're going to potentially talk about this towards the end, but if anything that this moment in my mind in 2020 teaches us, just like 2008, right. is this a time to, for, for entrepreneurs and founders to build, yes. for, new, for new founders and new entrepreneurs to come off their corporate jobs and into the startup, into the entrepreneur scene? And so, like, you know, I'm running Reapy. I'll only be running Reapy, but um, I want to see other people build great companies as well. Mm. And, and talk to me just for a second, and I, I, I really want to get to that point you just made about yeah. kind of jumping into almost like a recession or, I guess, a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, but one, one of the exciting things, and I saw, I think it was you who posted this or, or maybe Reapy's company page, but uh, you guys basically talked about the impact uh, of the waste that, that, that's happening, especially in the electronic space. Like people, mm-hmm. I'm holding up my phone, but a lot of people don't really realize what a phone is constructed from. And, and I think a lot of it is, you know, minerals and, and it really comes from actually the, the, the mining segment, but also how much of it is just wasted. In 2019, the value was around 57 billion. Correct. I, I don't think I was skipping on a zero. So yes. it's quite crazy when, when you think of the market now, when you guys yes. were starting out, did that seem like a attraction point that, holy, I mean, holy crap, like this is something we're addressing and it's massive. I, when we first started out, quite frankly, there wasn't a lot of good data. Um, so I was really operating kind of just, we, we, made it, we, um, we did lots of surveys. So when we go to a university, we say, hey, we, we have a survey or we're happy to kind of uh, repurpose it with you. But we want to talk to your students, your faculty through this survey, kind of understand what, what they think about waste, how much they think they're wasting. But when you go to universities at that time, they had no sense of that. You know, they, what, they're, what they're measuring is, the weight of the trash, which is a typical measure of, of, of waste. But like um, something can be wasted that's very light, right? Mm-hmm. Like a chemical of a certain type is very expensive, but it might not have a big volume or a big weight. So there wasn't a lot of good data. And then, so now, you know, five, six years later, where there are many consulting firms, there's many firms measuring these things, issuing white papers or reports, now you get that 57 billion uh, number on just the IT electronics. So not everything, just the, like your cell phone, computers, monitors, those types of things. And then people go, why aren't we trying to capture some of that value? And that's, so I, I, I wish we were as brilliant to say like, oh, there's a huge market out there and we know it and we're gonna build technology in order for businesses to be able to recapture that. We actually worked inversely, where we were just saying like, hey, who has our problem? Let's build a solution for you. And then a couple of years down the line, we just start seeing all these reports and all these news clippings come out and talking about how multi-trillion-like the circular economy could be. And here we are trying to build technology to scale the circular economy. Mm. So it was, um, it was uh, fortunate, but it, it, it's something intuitively that you know, right? Like, Intuitively, if you're in America, you, you probably have a good sense that we're not utilizing resources the way that we should. I think that's probably everyone knows it. But the question that we had, you know, as you as you take it to market to investors, to customers, is like, what's the value proposition you can deliver to that investor or to that customer that you can solve in this big kind of fragmented market? And so that's what we kind of trying to hone in on that messaging over the last several years and i think we have a good story to tell yeah that's also very interesting because i mean obviously as you're pointing out like the starting point i think just from a csr perspective not in terms of marketing but just like good people for the earth like i I think that is the basis right but to your point like when you take it to investors like that's amazing but like from a 
from a business perspective, how was that rebuttal from, from your perspective? What did you take to investors and say, listen, we get it. I, I know where you're coming from. Here, here is what we're trying to do from a business standpoint. And what was that concept looking like? Because I know you have an asset exchange as well. So how do you actually, just for someone listening who maybe hasn't come across Reaply, like sure. maybe a case study of like, let's say if you work with the university, how are they actually leveraging the platform? Yeah, sure. So, so basically the way that Reaply works is we build technology to help organizations, whether it be a university, whether it be a governmental entity, whether it be a Fortune 500 company or in between, we help them maximize the value of their current physical assets and resources. And the way that we do that is through a technology that we call an asset exchange manager or AXM. And what that does um, kind of at a very high level is it operates like an internal marketplace. So if I'm at, you know, a large multinational company and let's say there are 50 sites and I'm in one of those 50 sites an employee in one of those 50 sites, it's very likely that I don't know what's one of my colleagues in let's say site 49 has or has left if they've used a little bit of this physical resource, whether it be a liquid, a solid, whatever it is. And so what happens is that when I need something, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to run to our e-procurement system, our purchasing team to go buy something in the market. And when my colleague in site 49, when they get done with the resource that I could actually use, um, they're going to throw it away and they're going to send it to their disposition team. So basically large multinational organizations uh, at least lose money on two sides, both from unnecessary procurement and unnecessary disposition. And so what Reaply technology does is it connects me to that colleague that might be in another building or another, uh, another site so that I don't purchase something that the organization already has and they don't throw something away that the organization mm-hmm. like me needs. Um, and so we, we, we go to market, um, we kind of, fit in kind of the physical asset management space, um, um, but kind of with a a, a new age tool. Mm. And then one of the things that we figured out early on after our first pilot at Northwestern, one of my alma maters and where I'm a faculty member today, is that there is a market um, for when assets are no longer needed internally. So when you've made them more visible, when people have been like, yeah, I see that computer or I see that, really expensive piece of equipment. I don't need it. I don't need any of its parts. There's a market to moving that from the company to another company or startup or university who might. And so um, we then connect our organizations. So basically, Reaply allows you to create an internal marketplace within your company to reduce costs and waste. And then we no longer need those assets and resources. You can sell, donate, or rent them to another organization on a platform. Gotcha. That's awesome. And, and I'm assuming like in the beginning, were you doing audits of all these things as well? Like you would go into university, really help them on the consulting. I side. was, I was there, um, in our, our first six months of our launch, I was at Northwestern literally every single day. There's, uh, um, there was no reason we had a three person company. We had one client client kinda. So, you know, wish I spent my time was on site. So I was there every day. I did so many lab meetings. I did so many like, Hey, give us feedback, you know, use the app. We did, we bought so many donuts to have people using our app. I mean, we, we, we were throwing darts against the wall, uh, which, is, which is super cool, right? Because if I think about back to when we were talking about deliberateness, science and academia is slow, business is faster, startup is even faster, 
much faster than consulting, much faster than business, because every single day I'm, I'm, I'm the CEO talking to a user, talking to a customer. And then I can just go tell our product person who was one of three people in the company, hey, we need to change that. Change happens that fast, right? So we're iterating on a daily, maybe even hourly scale when a business might iterate on a yearly or or every six month scale. So um, I love that um, grit and I love learning that fast. I love seeing the customer or the user kind of react to the changes that we had made based on their feedback. And um, so even though I wasn't a startup guy, kind of going back up to the top or technologist, um, I really enjoyed the almost scientific nature by which you build products and you build companies in a startup scene. You form hypothesis, you go out and test it, you measure something, and then you have a conclusion, and then you did something, right? And so that's what we try to do at Replay. Yeah, no, that's amazing, man. And um, I just want to do a quick check, and I know we have uh, five minutes remaining on this. I can send another link if you're cool with it. I just don't want to rush the, sure. the conversation, but I just sure. want to let you know now before I cut you out. Yes. It's weird because it hasn't happened yet. Um, it's funny. I don't know what, what happened with, with the upgrade, but anyways... Um, I'll, I'll send a quick, if, if, it, if it times out, I will send a quick link right away. Sure. And then we can finish out the hour. Because um, I, I do want to touch on the personal side uh, and yeah. a few other things that, that I don't want to feel like we have to jam it. Um, on the personal side, though, I mean, obviously you're a CEO. I think it's a 15-person company right now, roughly speaking. Roughly, uh, yeah. We just hired three people. Uh, we, oh, three people just started on Monday, so not 18 now, but yeah. There you go. Congrats, man. And, <laughs> It's exciting, right? Like you're, you're leading all these <laughs> folks, especially in a pandemic. It's not easy. It's you know, not straightforward. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> it's not straightforward. And I think as an entrepreneur, you, you know, you're, you're kind of supposed to deal with ambiguity. Curious yeah. to see how, how you've managed to kind of as, as kind of like, the, you know, the captain of, of the flight. If you panic, everybody panics. You know, it's kind of like when turbulence hits, please don't tell me that you're panicking because otherwise I, I'm finding a different way out. <laughs> Uh, so curious is how you how you've kept calm and and kept the whole crew calm while kind of battling through this this whole uncertainty i think that um i don't know if i've kept completely calm there 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 have been there have been spikes in my my emotion of course like when COVID hit you know you have friends who are unfortunately closing down companies that are great companies but just affected by the market Right. While your company is having a moment and that really feels very weird. Then of course George Floyd happened and that was kind of a game changer for I think a lot of us, including myself, and how we think about equity and diversity in the market. Um but I think one of the things that I've tried to gra- keep grounding myself when I do have those spikes is really three things. The first is we always go back to our core values. So we formed our core, we formed seven core values uh, about three years, two years ago. And when I have a problem, when I can't, when I'm in the gray area, I go back and say, what do we believe in? What do we think um, when times were calm? So, you know, our first core value, um, I remember the first and seventh one without fail. The first one is we listen to and delight our users um, or customers. And then the last one is we strive, if all these things fail, if the other six fail, we strive to be helpful. So as I started to think about what we would do as a team, what we would, and what sentiment I would have to my team and what I would project, is I wanted to make sure that we're continue to be customer user centric 
and really listening to what's happening in the market. Um, and that, that made some tough decisions for us as well from a revenue perspective. But on the other hand, um, where governments and um, people were clamoring about, you know, how do we match supply and demand for PPE, for healthcare workers, because we all probably remember doctors and nurses wearing trash bags mm -hmm. during the outbreak. Given the art technology, we thought we had an answer, even if that didn't mean new revenue for us as a startup. That's where we can be helpful. And I think, so what I've tried to do is really focus our team on our values and where we can listen to customers and where we can be helpful in the market. And I think that's all kind of kept us, even when our emotions have spiked, in kind of a steady beat towards progress. Um, the, the second thing has been that I've been, um, I continue to say to our team is to be very, very grateful. There are a lot of great companies going through a lot of hurt right now. Um, and we're in a really interesting position. And not only should we do our jobs, but we should be grateful for the opportunity to, to do a job, uh, quite frankly. And the third has just been to be more personal. I mean, right now you're talking to me in my home. I'm talking to you and yours, unless that's a really cool interactive <laughs> background. Um, and uh, <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and so to, to just be um, human, mm. you know, when you're not feeling good, when you need a moment, you know, take that day, take that hour off. And so those are three things that I've just really tried to focus on our values, being grateful and just, listening to each other and ourselves. So we're all human. I mean, mm -hmm. there are ups and downs. So, so I, I like that take for sure. One of the things too, I was, I was actually reading um, your Medium article right before this. Uh, you know, obviously you mentioned uh, kind of briefly the, the tragic death of, of George Floyd. And, you know, for me personally speaking, and I'll give you just some context as to, as to where I'm going to go with this whole question. But um, so like this morning, for instance, my parents live in Lebanon, right? So I'm originally Middle Eastern and I'm not sure if you come across the news, but there was a pretty big explosion uh, in Lebanon. You know, same story in the, in the Middle East. There's always something kind of uh, pretty rough happening there. Um, but the way I felt, you know, especially living in the States right now or being in this part of the world, it's kind of like I, I, I felt like I could do, I wish I could do more, basically. When I first came to the States, I've only been here for eight months and I felt a different maybe sect of racism when I first moved to Canada. You know, being Middle Eastern, I didn't speak English very well. I was a chubby kid, mushroom kid, uh, mushroom cut, sorry. So it, it wasn't an easy experience, uh, to say the least. Um, but, but it was difficult, right? And I, I feel like for a lot of people listening, the, the question was like, what more can we do? And I think you're, you're, the, the last point in your Medium article really spoke volumes to me is like, you have to voice, right? You have to speak up. And I think now we're seeing that in the NBA with, with the jerseys and even LeBron James yesterday, I was okay. seeing an interview. He's saying, yeah. the reason I'm here you know, the reason I left my family and we're in the bubble and I'm, I'm, I'm using basketball as a platform so that we constantly bring up this conversation and it's not a one-off on, on an IG story, mm -hmm. you know? And so uh, I just wanted to bring that up from my perspective. Yeah. How can people do more that maybe aren't ingrained internally um, as directly as, as some other are? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I think it's, um, it has an evolving answer for sure. Mm. Um, and the, the piece that you're talking about, the, this piece, this essay I wrote called the, uh, the American Choke, was my way of saying that me as a Black American, as well as many others in all kind of stripes and colors, we don't say what we want to say. And the reason, <clears throat> the reason that we don't say typically what we want to say is human. 
is natural, right? It's because you're, you're trying to get to a certain place. So when you get to that place, you can affect change. But if you say something on the long that way, you might not get that place mm. or um, your, uh, your curtain, if you, if you're not a leader or, or founder or someone who, who doesn't necessarily have a reporting boss, if you do have a boss, if you're in a corporate setting, then the people in PR or the people in communications, they don't want you saying anything. Um, or unfortunately, like George Florida, many others, you're literally choked, mm -hmm. right? You're silent. You're silenced by threat of death or actual death, or you're not given a microphone because you're in the South side of Chicago or you're in the West side of town or you're in a part of town that's forgotten by the media or forgotten by the news. So I think in a lot of ways, there's lots of things that we've all wanted to say about race relations and maybe many, many other things in the country, but we don't. And so what I thought was something we all can do is that, you know, it's back to when we were uh, back to the George W. Bush era, uh, era, when you see something, say something, right? Like if you see something happening that is objectionable, um, whether it's in your corporate environment, whether it's on the street, you should say right. something and you should be, you should be unbounded uh, about doing so. And um, I thought that's something we all could do. There are people in positions of power who, of course, who can do more and their voice is louder. Their, their, and their, and their, um, their power is more mighty than maybe mine or maybe many others. But I think one thing that I've tried not to do since George Floyd's death is be uh, is to cartel my language uh, to please someone else's ear. If you ask me my opinion, I want to give it to you. And I think those are the kind of honest conversations that we had. Otherwise, you're going to continue to have people protesting and screaming in the streets because they're screaming because no one's listening to them. And so yeah. I thought that was something that we all do. And it just as a lesson to even founders running companies is that at least for me, I try to be, I know we're all busy, but I try to really listen to what's happening in the company, not just what people tell me, but the nonverbal signals, mm. the how things were said in the email, how things were said in an um, internal message, just to kind of really be in tune with people's lives and the work that they're doing for you. And I think that provides a certain level of clarity and kind of um, understanding that allows you to manage more effectively. So it's, it's not just about being a listener um, when you need to and being a speaker when you need to in the public sphere. It's also about taking those lessons to think about DNI internally. Right. You know, if you're running a big company, what are the black people saying in your company? What do they think? Have you ever asked them questions? You know, and so those are some of the things that I try to bring out that we all need to have conversations and all of our voices are important in that conversation. Man, and, and this is so, so timely and topical that you bring that last part up is yesterday I'm on the couch, uh, my fiance is right next to me, and I, I had no clue of what was happening with, with the whole, you know, the generous, um, you know, I guess fiasco by now. But uh, that's also a good example of even as a figure, although she might represent, you know, uh, equality, and, and I know she, she really does genuinely, I, I, I think, I mean, I don't know her well, but she pushes mm -hmm. that message. Um, people inside the organization feel very differently and they've had very different organization uh, experiences, sorry. And it seems like that communication where it's like genuine unbounded, like that true listening, what, what is that pulse of the organization might not mm -hmm. have been there as much as we 
probably have thought. Mm -hmm. And I don't say that's easy. And I think a lot of, I'm sure at some point, I probably have already gotten it wrong and I'm sure that I'll get it wrong again. Mm. I just think that you need, I try to, the, the perspective I have as a first time founder, as a scientist, is that I know that I'm not the best I can be. And I probably won't ever get there, but I'm willing to keep changing to make things more perfect. Like I'm trying to keep my ear enough to the ground, to customers, to our, our, our amazing employee base, um, to our supporters, to my investors. I'm trying to really understand where they come from and then trying to take that Rubik's cube and kind of solve it. It changes you know, with a news thing or someone dies or someone gets sick or someone leaves the company or some people come into the company. And then you have to rearrange some things that you had just figured out yesterday. So I don't say that any of these things are, are easy. And I think well-meaning people will get it wrong. Right. Um, and, but I think if you have a commitment to making it better, always, that I think people see you as human as well. You know, I have no magic wands to make everything. Uh, I always tell people when they come to Reaply that this is a family and we're building a company together. I don't have the music. I don't write, I don't have the score. I don't have the blueprint to how we do that. I have an idea of how we do it, but like, let's go do it together. And when we get down to this roadblock, I don't know, we'll figure out how to get past it together. And I think um, the together part mm. is the most important. Um, I, um, and not knowing every answer and not knowing, and knowing that I will also fail at some things. If you can just say, I'm committed to doing these things together, I think, um, it's an, it's an inclusive statement, right? So, um, so that's why I try to start with and, um, and, uh, and, and, and continue to try to challenge myself of like, is this, whether it be a meeting, is this meeting a good meeting? Are we running this well? you know, um, all the way to more, uh, more impactful uh, uh, points in the company. Yeah, it's very, it's very cool listening to what you're saying, because it's, it's kind of bringing that science mindset that you have, right, to, to really solving every problem or dissect it or, or self audit a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, even internally, like you're, I feel like even hearing you thought, I mean, you're always self auditing, not just yourself, but but the processes within the company, like how Absolutely. can we be more efficient? Absolutely. That, that, that's difficult to do too. It's because uh, you're always trying to be better as a startup, yes, right? Yes. We can't I, waste time. Like you can't you can't waste time. It's ever changing. Then you're you're slapped on the face <laughs> with a, a pandemic that we've not seen since a hundred years. Right. Um, you're slapped on your face with an upheaval in race relations, and then the rest. I mean, you talked about Lebanon. Then the rest of the it's it's hard to even understand what world news is like right now because there's so much going on in the United States. But of course we all know the whole rest of the world is going through quote unquote something right now too. And then let me add the cherry on top, global climate change, which affects us all. So if you're a startup person trying to operate and trying (laughs) to, you you either have it on you directly or you have it on you indirectly. Hmm. It's what your employees are thinking about. Um, and I just try to be human. You know, we've cried on our team meetings from a Joyce Ford thing. Mm. We've, um, been, you know, been angry and been wanting to get in the streets because should we go protest 
but we need to stay in our house because of COVID. There are literal hard things to do and they sum up to you. And even though you're not the mayor of Chicago or the president of the United States, people are looking at you and the organization from a, a perspective of leadership. Like, what do you think? What are you gonna do? You gotta have answers. Um, and so what I've just, what I've tried to do is what I, what I believe is um, sound. Um, and I, but I always try to say like, this could be a dumb idea, just like those ideas in those books. Um, I, I don't know. We, we have to go do it together. And, um, I think there's strength in trying things together that seem stupid apart, but like, if you have that kind of framework throughout the company, cool. I think, it, I think it makes hard decisions somewhat easier. Mm. It's so true. And especially like and back to that earlier point that you had about recessions, right? Like, and I had a call actually with the VC this morning that, that said the same exact thing. He's like, everybody talks about how it's, it's more difficult for us to do due diligence now on companies, but it's actually easier than ever. And he's like, if there's one thing I can tell, uh, you know, aspiring founders, it's like to jump in right now because, because of the, the environment, you're actually going to be so much more focused, rigid, and like very sniper focused on what to do. You know, yes. you're not going to waste time. You're not going to waste money. You're not going to no, waste yeah. your, your strategy. Everything is pinpointed because you don't have any other option. Absolutely. You know, you, you're, you're, um, you are trying to survive mm. um, in every sense, both for, from a revenue, from a financial probably sense if you're a, a, a startup person or founder, all the way to like an emotional and mental health and physical health and, and family health and friend health perspective. Everyone's trying to survive. And um, that tires you out, exhausts you after so long. And I'm sure lots of people are exhausted, which goes back into like, take a break if you need a break. Um, but it also does focus you because then you have to think what's incredibly important for me to get done today. And what else is kind of a detail that can get done tomorrow? And so our team, like I'm sure lots of teams, have been extraordinarily productive over the last six months. That doesn't come at, it's not cheap, right? That means we're paying costs otherwise. But from a uh, productivity, our, our team has never been more productive, um, mm -hmm. to, to your point, because I think there's been a level of just like focus right. to survive this uh, global crisis. Yeah. I mean, like one is focus. And then two, this is actually a perfect time to demonstrate, you know, your cap or your capacity or capability of leadership. Mm -hmm. Yes. If I want to elevate, this is yeah. kind of the staircase to get me there, you know? Yeah. The, um, the, uh, there's, there's no better time to demonstrate that you're a good surgeon than when someone mm -hmm. needs surgery. That's right. Right. So it's like, um, but I don't go into it. I, I don't know many founders or leaders, maybe political leaders, but I don't know many uh, business leaders who try to go into it with like um, an ego or like a, um, a bit of, I know it's like, let's figure out. Right. right. It's a, it's a interesting problem. Yesterday, my problem was thinking about how do we hit our two, 2020 forecast global pandemic hits. Now I think about what is my forecast? It ain't gonna happen. <laughs> right? Like it's a totally different, you're, it's an even more fundamental question. Now that the market has changed yeah. significantly, where do I sell? Who needs my products or services? Why do they need them? 
And so we've had completely different use cases for our technology that I would have I never imagined back in the university five years ago that are being used today, that we've signed contracts with today. So it's, it, you know, some people, I think, sometimes overuse or misuse the word pivot. But I think it is about how do I, how do I meet the customer need, right? Am I listening to my customers? Am I talking to my users? Do I understand what they're going through? And then think about what you can do to help them. If you can kind of match those two, then there's, a, then there's value that probably can be exchanged. Right. Yeah. P- pivoting almost kind of like adapting, I guess. Is, is Correct. The problem, right? I uh, mean, there's sometimes there are pivots, but I think that um, sometimes that word is overly or misused in the startup community because um, it's, it's, it's almost sexy to say, oh, we pivoted into a billion dollar company. Yeah. And it's like, mm, what, what you actually did was just use your product in a different market or in a different way. I would use the word pivot. Um, you know, like if you were one day making shoes and, and tomorrow you're making sunglasses, that's a pivot. Um, but if you're making shoes and you're selling them to different markets, you just refocus. And I think, but that kind of flexibility has to come with total buy-in from the team. It has to come from leadership to say, this is what we're going to do. We're making a decent sized bet. And, the, and, and you're doing that in the limelight. I mean, you're doing it when the pandemic is hitting. So there's no like hiding from what you're doing. And so um, we've had some hard decisions. We're continuing to have some at Reefly. Um, but what's really cool is that I think if we just continue to continue to work together and work with our customers and users, I think on the other end of this, we'll start building a more sustainable business world, which is our whole objective from the beginning. Love it, man. Um, I, I want to end on this note, if it's okay with you, but just sure. talking a little bit on on the cap raising side. Uh, I know I know Reefly was part of TechStars. You raised mm-hmm. you raised a bit of money from Hyde Park uh, Angels, which I think a lot of people in Chicago would know, among other uh, VCs like M25, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, just want to want to get your take on on the process, but also what uh, you know minority founders could could look to do. Because I, I was talking to Eric Blackin as an example, uh, mm-hmm. fifteen million dollar fund, minority focused, and, and seeing the awesome work he's doing. But from your perspective, like what are some of the successful key takeaways that founders can emulate to, to raise to raise capital, especially in this market? Mm-hmm. So that's a great question, and I'm about to start fundraising it. So fundraising, so sure. you know, hopefully, I can take my advice own advice. Mm-hmm. I think that um, I'm a I'm a reformed Boy Scout, right? So I think always preparedness. I think even more so, and I think the way that you get prepared to fundraise or to even start a company if you're a new founder is you gotta you gotta do the there's no shortcuts you gotta talk to investors you gotta talk to um founders who've gone before you um who've raised in this environment and kind of just say hey why'd you do that right it's a kind of a simple question i mean a lot of people when you know you see a fundraising announcement on linkedin or something they go oh my god congratulations you know what i do hey how did you do that what was the process? <laughs> yeah, tell me, tell me what you did there. Um, so that's one thing. I think being prepared. I think the other thing is just being honest. I mean, hey, unless you're in, uh, oh, my lord, unless you're in like some type of like weirdly siloed food delivery application uh, uh, market, or mm-hmm, it's hard for me to think of something else actually. Utilities? No, not even utilities. Every market's down. The global market is down, right? So, like, 
the, I think what we must be selling as, as founders and entrepreneurs is partial our current metrics pre, during, and post-COVID. Mm -hmm. But also like why this business is the business to make a bet on a year, two, three, four, five from now. Everyone's going to have down metrics and it's, it's just cool to be honest about them and know why they were down. And, and, and if you have things, we've had things that we've tried to do to abate those reduction in activity or reduction in revenue metrics. But hopefully every uh, VC or, not, or investor worth their salt understands that a global retraction like only 100 years ago has seen just happened. And so I think just being really honest and being prepared it's going to help most founders. I think if they're a diverse founder, just if I could take a note on that, hmm. um, there are going to be a lot more resources for diverse founders. I'm trying to work decently hard to, with a, a couple other founders in Chicago, at least, to kind of help foment a better environment for, for entrepreneurs of color. Um, and so I would say, look towards 1871, look towards Techstars, look towards why Combinator, there are a lot of resources that are going to go through those channels over the next months. And, um, um, but I think, I think there's something coming for founders who look more like me, but I, um, but I think just being prepared and um, just being truthful and honest um, is, uh, is, is a good start. I love that, man. Well, th thanks so much, dude. I know, uh, we're up on time, but, but this was amazing. Really. I appreciate you, you know, you sharing the, the journey, documenting it. And hopefully we, we see a, an update from you when, when that uh, round closes and I can ask you what the process was like. So, yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And, you know, just for anyone who's listening, who's, who's starting a company or has a company, let just please keep going. Um, we, even if your company doesn't work, even if Reefy doesn't work, we all need to keep pushing innovation into the market that's, in my opinion, the only thing that brings us out better than where we came. So um, not that I'm anybody, but if you can hear me, like, keep going. Send that email. Do that spreadsheet. Do that deck. If you found this podcast useful, make sure to share it out with your community. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast. I'll see you next time.